So we have this immense problem on the large scale of one of the deadliest animal on the planet, which is mosquitoes, and we don't know where they are. And no number of scientists walking around with their gadgetry will be able to ever tackle this question because there are not enough scientists on this planet. And we asked ourselves a very simple question one day, thinking in the lab, you know, what is the most common tool that's being carried around that can record acoustics and store acoustics and send acoustic information? And we realized cell phones have incredible microphones. With a challenge like mosquitoes, it's extremely important that we engage people in the data collection process itself. Welcome to Stroke of Genius, a show exploring inventions, the inventors behind them, and the role intellectual property plays in dreams becoming reality. I live in the world of ideas. I deeply care about them, and I respect other people's ideas, and I value them. And as a society, we build on top of each other's ideas, and so it's incredibly important to have a structured way. With the patent, what we've been able to do is scale up this process. I'm your host, Andrea Matho. I'm a startup founder, a CEO, and a co-inventor with Patent Pending Technology. In this episode, we're talking with an inventor whose keen sense of curiosity has unfolded a world of opportunities for limited resource communities all over the globe. My name is Manu Prakash, and I'm a faculty in the Department of Bioengineering at Stanford University. Professor is just one of Manu's titles. He's a physical biologist and an inventor with work that touches on everything, from soft matter physics to ecological surveillance. He's won awards from MIT, the Pew Foundation, and is a recipient of the prestigious MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. His successes are due in large part to his innate curiosity, something he honed as a young child in India. So I grew up in a slightly rural part of India, uh, in small towns all along. Growing up as a kid, I was, you know, cutting open rabbits and drying out frogs and figuring out how many bones does a rabbit or a frog have. So, you know, there was an innate exposure to biology for me. It was not formal. We were doing science by tinkering, not knowing what we were doing was actually science. Today, Manu applies his instinctual approach to experimentation at the Prakash Lab at Stanford University, where he and his researchers apply a methodology they call curiosity-driven science. It's following your nose. Uh, It's uh, getting a sense and a gut feeling for what and why something is important and going after that, no matter whether you have the sets of funding resources or the right skill sets even sometimes to tackle those questions. You know, I don't know any other way of doing science without the lens of curiosity. When I was in graduate school, I was making computers with bubbles. You know, I wasn't asking why that's important. I wanted to first figure out whether it's possible. It quite literally is uh, what it sounds like to be able to create a computer that operates not on electricity, but on little drops of water and gas bubbles. Manu and his professor created a way to use tiny bubbles to mimic the capabilities of a computer. They currently hold the patent for microfluidic bubble logic devices. Like the bubble computer, most of Manu's inventions require little to no scientific resources to function, 
This is motivated in part by his childhood in India, where he experimented with whatever materials were immediately available. I've carried that with me even in my lab here at Stanford, and we are frugal when we are thinking about ideas because we don't just care about making discoveries ourselves, we care about also sharing those sets of tools for discovery to the broadest group of people. The Prakash Lab is addressing the lack of tools in resource-poor parts of the world by creating devices that are low-cost, widely accessible, and empower frugal science. I mean, I think one way that I define frugal science has always been we are the lucky ones as professional scientists, especially in places in where science is being supported financially to get the chance and to have the kinds of tools to be able to explore our curiosity. But the number of problems that plague our planet and the importance of curiosity and science for just an everyday person around the world is too important for science to only be relegated to a few wonderful spots around the world. Frugal science brings the necessary tools to some of the most remote areas of the developing world. You know, the challenges of remoteness and the, the size scale of our planet is incredible. And in the current day and age, it's actually feasible to bring the kinds of tools that are cost appropriate that enable not just a few group of people to explore, but for the entire planet to explore. One of the first impactful inventions to emerge from his design philosophy of frugal science was the Foldscope. This was a microscope uh, that we invented in my lab almost seven years ago now. Uh, which is an origami microscope that you fold together with a flat sheet of paper. It costs a dollar, dollar seventy-five. You put it together with your own hands, and you can image single bacteria out of your mouth swimming around with just this tool and nothing else. Pass this one around to everybody. I have black things in my hair and long <laughs> Yeah, so show show that to somebody. Do you oh see that? my god! You see the perfect hair. We found a nematode and a weird-looking cell. And it was important for us at that time to ask a question. You know, we have a powerful tool at hand, and we worked very hard to make the tool accessible, and we wanted it to be a blank slate. We wanted to figure out what would people do with it. Rather than seeding our own bias and our ideas on the table, we asked the community, anybody who has an idea or a project that they care about, we will ship tools to them. And I'm proud uh, to say we've shipped around roughly 750,000 Foldscopes around the world so far. And that's created something much more powerful than what I had started the project on, which is the Foldscope community. Quite literally around the world at this very moment, there are thousands of explorers digging in the mud, looking at things and being curious and asking each other what it is, and then posting and sharing that data openly and letting both the scientific and the non-scientific community a window into their local lives. Thanks to Manu's resolution to ship paper microscopes all over the world and the simplicity of the tool itself, the Foldscope online community is now a massive crowdsourced database that tracks experiments everywhere from your kitchen counter to the most remote mountaintop. It's a tool that can provide endless entertainment to a curious 12-year-old, but also equip scientists and doctors in a global health context. As the community grew, I was just surprised by both the creativity 
and the breadth of questions that many of these entrepreneurs and tinkerers brought to the table. I remember distinctly a group out of Nigeria where a student came up with the idea of detecting fake currency using a foldscope or a Mongolian scientist starting to use foldscope to detect bacteria in camel milk because he couldn't convince many of the other farmers that they should pasteurize camel milk or a group in Mexico looking at, you know, live cells in a mother's milk to promote and talk about breastfeeding and the importance of breastfeeding. Or a group in Tanzania with the Maasai Maras trying to initiate habits for hand washing in a community that's living deep in the forest and demonstrating the importance of hand washing not by just talking and singing songs, but by actually sharing germ theory. Unless I see it, how do I believe it? Manu understood that the key to accomplish his goals for Foldscope was to scale up the production process and put the tools in the hands of as many people as possible. So in 2012, he filed a patent for the Foldscope, which includes 22 pages of origami diagrams and microscopic images, making the patent appear more like an activity book you might find at a craft store rather than an official legal document. For Manu, the benefits of patenting quickly became obvious. One of the things that I often think about is uh, to have a structured way. I also want ideas to float uh, freely as possible, get into the most number of hands as possible. Just like you're carrying a pencil or a pen in your pocket, somebody invented that tool. Somebody worked hard to make that accessible at a price point. You know, you don't buy pencils for $100. If there was one, then what's the point? And somebody worked hard to make it accessible and affordable. So I think personally for us, that was always the mission. So of course, uh, we filed a patent on Foldscope on the process and the actually a design patent as well on this mechanism for using origami as a manufacturing process. And of course, uh, with the patent, what we've been able to do is scale up this process and to enable and ship at this moment Foldscopes around the world for $1.75. This is quite literally how much it costs currently to make a Foldscope. And the way we make this entire operational sustainable is there are several other tools, including accessories and a little more advanced Foldscopes that actually support these basic classroom kits. So much of that is only possible because there is intellectual property around a Foldscope. And again, that intellectual property grows as well because we build many, many, many types of instruments based on these sets of ideas. I work at a university, and so, of course, the patent uh, is owned by me and Stanford together. And we went to the OTL office, the intellectual properties office at Stanford, and we made a pitch that we would like to be able to bring this tool to people uh, at the most affordable price point, and they are accessible and available to everyone around the world. But because we had a certain amount of intellectual property, then we can invest manufacturing capabilities, you know, because ideas just sit there. They don't, on their own, land up in the hands of people around the world. So there's a lot of work 
and an infrastructure that we had to put together to be able to manufacture this at large scale. After successfully collecting transformative data in remote locations thanks to the Foldscope, Manu set out to create another technology that could similarly benefit those in resource-poor settings. He moved on from paper microscopes to his next invention, the paperfuge. The principle of it is actually very simple on the surface, uh, but then again, to truly understand it, we had to dive in into understanding the dynamics of this uh, simple toy. So Paperfuse is inspired by this toy that many of your uh, listeners might have played with. It's called a whirligig uh, or a button on a string or a run run in many cultures. It's one of the oldest toys that I am aware of in the history of mankind. You take a button, you put a string around it, and you twist the string and then you push and pull on that string and it leads to this object spinning back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But we realize if we mathematically solve these sets of equations, this object has the capacity to go as fast as 125,000 RPM. I mean, that's an equivalent of 30,000 G-forces that cells inside it would experience at that time. Manu describes the paperfuge as a simplified version of an extremely complicated scientific device, the centrifuge. We asked him to explain how this 18th century invention works. There are ways of processing biological samples and all kinds of samples that require centrifugation, which is the idea of spinning something fast enough that something that has a higher or lower density will separate out. And the problem that I wanted to tackle was many centrifuges have been invented in the past, but all of them depend on electricity. And there are several examples of centrifuges that do not depend on electricity, but they're not powerful enough. They don't spin fast enough. So it would take half a day for somebody to be spinning a sample, which is just not feasible. So we wanted to compete in performance with the kinds of centrifuges that I have in my lab, for example, or exist in fantastic hospitals but they do not require any electricity and you could centrifuge samples in the middle of nowhere under a tree, for example. And that's what paperfuge is. It's difficult to imagine that a piece of paper and some string can perform medical diagnostics just as effectively and accurately as an electric-powered laboratory machine. But Manu explains that centrifugation is a matter of simple science and that paperfuge yields results you don't have to be an expert to decipher. I think it's very simple. Depending on what tests you're trying to do, say, for example, we developed a test for anemia and then once the spinning is done you look at the capillary and you see the ratio of the white portion which is your plasma versus the packed red portion which is your packed red blood cell volume and there is a marker on this thing which just says whether you have anemia or not and what percentage uh, and that's it so you just look at it and you read the marker in other cases for example you can take the capillary and then put it in a fold scope and then you identify what pathogen you have. Many of these things are also in progress. So uh, we haven't released Paperfuge on a large scale, but in uh, the next couple of months, we'll be announcing a program that allows anybody to also have access, just like what we did with Foldscope, to enable and play and build new applications on top of that tool as well, because we also want many more people to be engaged in the process of designing and hacking and exploring. If the tune you're listening to right now has you instinctively swatting at your earbuds, that makes sense. 
What you're hearing is a song that's been produced by the sound of wing beats from different species of mosquitoes. Inspired by the success of Paperfuge and Foldscope, the Prakash Lab's latest project enlists citizen scientists to collect data to solve a global health crisis. There are so many mosquito species around the world, and we don't understand their distribution. Every time, you know, when Zika hit, we were struggling with what mosquitoes are carrying Zika. Where are these mosquitoes? Where are they going? So we have this immense problem on the large scale of one of the deadliest animal on the planet, which is mosquitoes, and we don't know where they are. And no number of scientists walking around with their gadgetry will be able to ever tackle this question because there are not enough scientists on this planet. Of all the disease-transmitting insects, mosquitoes pose the greatest threat to humanity. These pests spread malaria, dengue, and yellow fever, which together are responsible for several million deaths and hundreds of millions of illnesses every year. Manu understood that the scope of mosquitoes' impact is so colossal that there literally aren't enough scientists in the world to come close to gathering the data needed to study, track, and ultimately solve the mystery of how these creatures continue to wreak havoc on humanity. And we asked ourselves a very simple question one day, thinking in the lab, you know, what is the most common tool that's being carried around that can record acoustics and store acoustics and send acoustic information? And we realized cell phones have incredible microphones, and it turns out, biologically, mosquitoes produce this sound. When you're sleeping, you've heard this buzz by your ear, but they encode the signature of what species that mosquito is and what sex that mosquito is in that buzz. And we connected the two together uh, with uh, graduate students and postdocs in the lab where we built, essentially, an app that detects mosquitoes as they fly around. The burden of mosquitoes' effect are carried almost solely by the countries with the fewest resources. Recognizing that those who could benefit most from the app don't have access to the latest smartphone, the Abuzz creators designed the platform so that it can be used by almost every model of cell phone. First thing that changes is the baseline frequency, and the reason for that is quite subtle and quite interesting. So many mosquitoes mate in flight, and they actually have to hear each other to know whether this is the right species that I should be mating with because, I mean, there are 3,000 or more species of mosquitoes, but you have to find your own kind to have a progeny that will continue. So what happens is that the female mosquito wings uh, her beats, wing beats, and that produces a sound. The male listens to it, and it actually tunes its beat frequency to that specific frequency. The female hears that back, and then essentially there is almost like a love song that's going on. And this is why mosquitoes then, when different sets of species have slightly different frequencies. And then we map the geotag data, we map the time of the day, the temperature, and all of that goes in into a machine learning infrastructure that allows us to predict what species of mosquitoes. And of course, much of this computational infrastructure is still growing because there are so many species of mosquitoes, we don't even have baseline recording for all species on our planet. Although the science behind it sounds complicated, a buzz is incredibly easy to use. Manu often refers to it as the Shazam for mosquitoes. So you pull out your phone, you record 500 millisecond to a second of a acoustic snippet. We process that computationally. And then we can put a certain probability number to what is the probability that this mosquito is this species, and then uh, whether this set of species actually carries any diseases or not. And now we are in the phase of expanding this. We're going to release an app at the end of the summer 
that anybody can download. Currently, there is a web app that's functional that people upload data and share data around the world. Uh, but now we're going to release something on um, cell phone platforms that's native that'll allow people to finally record mosquitoes. And, you know, I think we all have a sense of complaining about problems that exist on this where we live, but we also have a duty to be part of those solutions. So with a challenge like mosquitoes, it's extremely important that we engage people in the data collection process itself. And that's what we're excited about. One of Manu's grad students explains just how simple but important it is to engage in the Abuzz experiment. If you see a mosquito and you swat it, you saved yourself an itch for one day. But if you see a mosquito and you record it and you send the data to the Abuzz project, then you've potentially contributed to an effort that can reduce the burden of mosquito-borne disease for many generations in the future. Manu's work has focused on providing access to complex tools in simple ways. But the core idea of curiosity-driven science is that the tools required to answer big questions are actually less important than the drive to ask the questions themselves. We make sense of our world by observing. So why is it that after a certain age we forget this innate, intense curiosity that we're born with? And what's been really heartwarming has been is that ironically, we didn't have to push people to be curious. They were always curious. It's just they didn't have the right set of tools to look deeper, look farther from what they have had the experience to look, which is what the goal is. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Manu Prakash. You can check out Foldscope experiences from all over the world at foldscope.com and see some of the patents featured in this episode by clicking the link in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Stroke of Genius. This podcast is produced by Atwell Media on behalf of Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. Please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts.